Welcome to the Principles of Success, interviewing the expert, and today's book review is a little different. We'll get to the actual episode here in a second, but I recorded a short series of books way back when on farming and homesteading kind of material, just because I was reading them anyway, and I saved them for this announcement, and I'm happy to announce the Zion Home Project. Now, I've already mentioned it in passing in previous episodes, but the Zion Home is a way to be self-sufficient in a collapsing world and still enjoy the 21st century lifestyle. So like having electric light bulbs and refrigeration and air conditioning and heating and flushing toilets and all that fun stuff. Now, a lot of you might not be interested in it. In With recent historical events, there might be a bigger interest, but I know that's not the target audience for this podcast in general. However, if you have a curiosity, and I'm sure a lot of you do, that's what the next several books are about. And if you want to know more about the Zion Home in particular, go check out my TikTok or YouTube, and they're both Nathan Dickison. N-A-T-H-A-N-D-I-C-K-E-S-O-N. And on to the show. Welcome to the Principles of Success, interviewing the experts, and today's book review is... I honestly have no idea when I'm going to publish this book review, because it'll probably be right around the time when I'm announcing something pretty cool that I think. So I'm just going to hold on to this one, but I also just finished this book, so I wanted to do the book review while it was fresh in my mind. And this book is called Restoration Agriculture. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So for a lot of you, this probably isn't the normal book that you would read. But some of you... You might be interested in it, and in some regards, it is a business book. It is how to be profitable at farming. Now, most of you probably have never had any interest in farming, but who knows? With the way the world is going, you might be more interested in self-sufficiency, and a lot of these principles apply to backyard gardens as well. But for the most part, this is an ideologically book, and in fact, there's a lot of parts I don't agree with. But it is a nice book to talk about some of the things that I'll be talking about in whatever my announcement is. So without further ado, let's talk about restoration agriculture. And the first key thing is it's an ideological shift from conventional farming, which is trying to maximize the amount of output crops no matter the cost, including profitability. Profitability. I can't say that word tonight. Being profitable. Very few farmers under industrial agricultural design are profitable. That's why a lot of farms are turning into giant conglomerates because the average farmer just can't make a profit under the current model that they have been taught to do under over the last 80 years, I believe, roughly. Anyway. So, that's the first thing. Second one, annuals are scar tissue. So what is an annual? Annual are crops that are only one year. 
and most of our food are annuals. When the earth gets torn up, whether it's from a earthquake, a volcano, a landslide, flooding, whatever, the earth gets all torn up and there's bare dirt exposed. Another example is tilling. The dirt is all exposed and the earth does not like dirt being exposed. It needs something to cover that wound. And that's the job of the annuals. And a lot of our crops are annuals. A lot of our um, grain crops especially are annuals. In fact, I don't think there is any non-annual grain crops. But annuals are scar tissue. It's are more, like, more accurately, it's like a scab. You get injured, your body produces kind of this fake skin that's not your real skin while it takes time to heal the real skin. And same thing for the earth. The annuals, which are a lot of our crops, are the scab tissue that is there to kind of protect the dirt while the perennials take time to get built up. And a perennial is a multi-year thing. An example of this is a tree. Trees are really vulnerable the first three years, but afterwards they are pretty hefty creatures. And when your farming is focused on annuals, you have every single year you have to replant, re-harvest, and um, then till up the earth again and replant. And annuals extract. They don't give to the dirt. They extract the nutrients, and then you take that nutrients away, and then you cut the dirt back up. So every year we have worse and worse soils. That's why um, most of the world is turning into desert, is because we keep basically stabbing our dirt to death. Next takeaway, politicians cared the politicians killed the American farm. They're the ones that encouraged the industrial um, model that farmers are following. They encouraged them to take out debt. We talked about, I'm assuming last year, of the dangers of debt, and they encouraged farmers to do it, and then that ruined them financially. Encouraged them to take out big loans on giant tractors that they can't actually afford so that way they can get more yield so that way they can then hypothetically produce more and it just never is the case. They encourage them to buy more inputs like fertilizer and pesticides and all sorts of stuff that while you might generate a million dollars in revenue because your crops are super efficiently produced, you also spent two million dollars to produce that one million dollars. And which is why most farms have gone out of business. And then politicians and messing with the real estate market as well. That all screwed it up as well. So politicians killed the American farmer. And that's just a big takeaway that kind of sucks because politicians suck. Anyway, moving on. Third is, na or next, is nature heals. If you give it just a couple of years to breathe properly, not isolate it, well, he doesn't really talk about this, but I'll talk about it here in a sec. But if you give nature a chance to breathe and function normally, it will heal itself real quick. So the caveat that I just thought of is, um, for instance, in America especially, we have nature preserves where we just basically said, hands off, leave them alone. Problem is we uh, eliminated the wild animals that help preserve grasslands and forests, like for instance the buffalo. So you have to include a cattle management into the wildlife reserves, otherwise they will slowly turn to desert. But when nature is given a chance to function properly, including uh, when we add inputs that 
we have eliminated from nature, then it will function properly. And we'll actually talk more about that subject here in a sec. Next one is we are dependent on fossil fuels. So I am actually recording this right around the height of gas skyrocketing like crazy due to Russian war. Now this might be forever published later, but this is a prime example of our fossil fuel dependency making everything very vulnerable. If, for instance, the supply chain gets all screwed up, then everything skyrockets in price because we are super dependent on oil. Next, let's actually... That's all ideology stuff. Now we're d diving into the actually good part. So, if you haven't heard this term, it is called a food forest. This is just one example of a, especially for backyard gardeners, of maximizing productivity on a plot of land. And a food forest is just knowing that your land is not a flat surface, or viewing your land not just as a flat surface, but as a three-dimensional thing where you can have height, including trees. And there's just seven layers to a food forest. And if you want more information on it, just go YouTube. There's a million videos on food forests, including ones that I'll probably be making at some point. So the first layer is the emergent layer. This is all, most of the time your annual annuals. This is also grass and things like that. It's basically the ground layer. It's the first layer that we all think of. It's your garden layer, your root vegetables. Those are all those kind of things. Next is the shrub. So berry bushes, vines like grapes, understory. So these are trees that can handle some shade. And then there's the overstory, which if it's in the backyard setting or canopy, not overstory, um, if it's a backyard setting, you probably won't have a canopy because you probably don't want trees that are towering 100 feet high. But the canopy are the big trees that oftentimes are your wood production for energy purposes, which he doesn't really talk about this in this book, but they can also be giant nut trees, like for instance, oaks, or the American chestnut, which actually doesn't exist anymore, but it was a hundred foot tree that dropped millions of pounds of nuts every year. And that's a layer that, that's how basically every forest works. And the most productive food system is a savanna. It has the most animal production, the most nut production, the most fruit production, the most vegetable production. And savannas are found all over the world, and that's what nature naturally likes, actually. That's why we have had those all those giant mammals like mammoths and elephants and buffalo. And the most common savanna is actually a oak savanna. So different regions have different plants that function pretty good, and they all pair really well together. So an oak savanna Pairs well with chestnuts, apples, hazelnuts, um, most the common berries, and those all work really good to, with each other to produce. There's also tropical savannas and arctic savannas, and depending on your reason, you'll have to shift things up a bit. But for most of us, in most of the population of the world, and especially in America, the oak savanna and your apple trees and your chestnuts and your hazelnuts and your berry bushes... And your grapes all pair well with each other. So next is that you need to use animals as well. I already mentioned it here a little bit ago, but animals play an important part. One, they control pests. They also fertilize. If you don't have animals in your apple orchard, you have to spray to kill the bugs. But if your animals come in and eat the fallen apples in the fall, and then 
or so let's use actual examples. If you have pigs come into your orchard in the fall, they eat all of the fallen apples um, that contain the bugs in them because the apples that fall are usually the ones that are diseased first. So if you have them come in like a week or two before harvest, they eat all of the bugs that are in the apples. And then in the springtime, you bring in the chickens, all the babies that are trying to find their way up out of their hatching and up into your apple trees, the chickens are like, ooh, breakfast, and eat all of the bugs. So then with a pairing of chickens and pigs, you now have a very minute pest problem because they ate all the pests. And then the cow's main role isn't really pest control, but it is that's the best fertilizer one, and it is the best for soil health. It eats the grass that is competing for moisture and sunlight with your trees uh, and or your crops. And then it also um, builds soil, so that way your soil can absorb more water, which is beneficial to your plants, and it fertilizes it. So healthier soil equals better um, plants and trees and bushes. So that's the role of the cow. So crops need animals. That's kind of the main takeaway for that. And then we'll come back to animals here again in a sec, but this is how he did it, so I'm just going to stick with it. Next, he talks about um, just some cool benefits from doing a perennial-based farming system instead of a uh, crop, annual crop-based system. The one I thought was really cool is that hazelnuts, the shells, are actually more BTU powerful per pound than wood is. So BTU is um, basically how much heat you get out of burning something. So for instance, gasoline is ridiculously potent at BTUs. It's full of BTUs, that's why we use it. Because it, the amount of power you get to weight ratio is ridiculously high. But what, anyway, that's what BTUs is. Hazelnuts, shells, so you're getting the hazelnut crop, which is pretty beneficial, and you can turn it into flour and make pretty much anything that we use grains for. That's his main driving point, is he's trying to get, eliminate the grains. I'm just more interested in the profitability of it, because it takes less inputs and less labor each year, and it um, appreciates instead of depreciates. But his main is that he wants to get us off of crops, or off of annual crops. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So as a added bonus, he's talking about how hazelnut shells, which is a waste product, is actually more potent than wood for burning purposes, which I thought was really cool because I have self-reliant stuff and that's just a added bonus to growing hazelnuts. Also, you can coppice, which is a art of chopping trees, um, basically chopping baby trees regularly because you get more wood per year from that. And most trees, if they have a well-established root system, have no problem getting coppiced. So next he goes back to the stacking effect of you can have a 100-foot pine tree, a 30-foot apple tree, 
blueberries under the trees, and then blackberries protecting the blackberry brambles, protecting the blueberries from birds and animals. So now in one area, you're getting pine, which is a very useful tree, apples, blueberries, blackberries, and you can have animals in the same area because they're not going to touch the blueberries because there's sharp pokey things that are in the way. So then he goes back to the animals, which, and he talks about, which is one of my favorite things, maximizing pasture land. So how we use our pastures is ridiculous, ridiculously inefficient, and it actually degrades the soil instead of improves the soil. Like I said, cows, their job is to improve the soil, but for the most part, under normal management of how we do it, they actually destroy soil because you stick them in this big area, they're going to eat only the tasty things, ignore the less tasty things, and then next year there's more less tasty things because they're the ones that survived, and they're less nutritious and worse for the ground. And also, when you leave them in one area too long, they're going to impact the soil and make it so that way water can't get into the soil as well, which makes everything dry out more, which produces more untasty things for the cows. But when you are moving them regularly and have them uh, mobbed up in a herd, which is what they're supposed to do, then they're actually very beneficial to the soil. But that, that wasn't what he was talking about here. What he's talking about here is you can, just like you can stack plants vertically and have them have symbiotic relationships, you can use the same piece of pasture for multiple animals. Uh, first, you run in the cows. They pick what the cows eat. Then you move them out. Then he talks about bringing in sheep. Sheep will eat some of the things that the cows will not. Uh, you can, I believe his rule of thumb was two sheep per cow. And then he, you move them out. Then he brings in the pigs, which I actually disagree with him on this point. Pigs don't belong on pasture. They belong in the forest. But anyway, he brings in the pigs and they do their thing. Then you bring in the chickens and chickens don't need the grass. They want all the bugs that are exposed from all the manure droppings of the previous animals and all the short grass because the bugs were hiding in the grass, but now they're exposed. So the chickens run around eating all the bugs, spreading the manure, so that way it fertilizes the ground better, and then you move them out. All within the same area, and the soil is actually improved by this, not deproved, or grows worse over time. Now, obviously, you can't have the same number of cows that you could have, but... If you have cows and pigs and sheep and chickens, you are producing more meat overall on the same plot of land than you would have if you had just done cows themselves. And I just realized I'm not going to have anywhere near enough time to do all of the points that I want to talk about in this, so I'm going to skip a couple. Next really big one is, I don't remember what acronym he uses, but it's essentially the art of planting crops and then ignoring them. And there's several benefits to this. One, less labor. More profitability when there's less labor involved, less costs. Uh, two, not spraying. Um, you don't have to constantly pay for spray and fertilizer because you're not doing anything with it. So it lowers costs, lower labor, and this is actually the main purpose. You, the ones that survive, because a lot of it will die, are the ones that are better suited for your area. 
So if you plant a hundred apple seeds and 98 of them die because you didn't do anything with them, let's say you live in an arid environment, well, those two apple seeds, they're the ones that are going to live with no issues in your environment. And then you take those apples and make more apples that are more suited to that environment. Now here's the con, and which, which is why I specifically used apples. Apples, when you plant them by seed, they have wide variety of stuff. And most of the time, it's nearly inedible apples that are produced from seeds. That's why they always say, don't plant apple seeds, buy an apple tree that has a specific breed. But you can plant the apple seeds, find the apple trees that survive pretty good, and then you can graft on the tasty apples that you want. But this approach, most of your crops will die, especially within the first couple of years. However, after that, you don't have to irrigate as much, you don't have to fertilize as much, you don't have to protect in the winter as much. They are going to thrive in your area. They are the, sur the survivors. They are the few that survived, and they're like, yeah, this, this place isn't too bad. And it's basically just taking advantage of the evolution of adaptation for an area. The Inca would actually grow crops in st uh, their crops up the sides of mountains by planting them in a terrace and then the next year planting them like five feet slightly higher and then the ones that grew good that year got replanted another five feet slightly higher so that way they could acclimate their crops to the mountaintops where they lived. So basically, if a plant wants to die, let it die. And if a plant wants to live, if it's a profitable plant, encourage it to live. He uses an example of a guy who was trying to, I believe it was trying to plant walnuts, and his walnuts kept dying, but his hickory, which is also a very profitable wood, um, he was having problems trying to keep this wild hickory from growing all over his uh, property that he wanted to plant walnuts in. And the guy was like, how about let's skip the walnuts and instead focus on growing the hickory that already wants to grow here. And then other things that I just don't have time to talk about are, for instance, um, agroforestry, growing trees and animals together. The animals provide fertilizer and pest control and weed control for your trees. Your trees provide shade so that your animals don't get hot or shelter for the storms. And then another, which I've already talked about somewhat, is industrial agriculture does not pay. They have successfully trapped anybody who wants to be a farmer and under the industrial umbrella into a endless spiral of debt and a low profitability to where they're working like 80-hour weeks and making, if they're lucky, minimum wage because they're buying all these inputs try and maximize their yield, but the inputs outweigh the yield. And then also they have decaying soils, depreciating infrastructure, and all that has to be replaced while they're not making a profit. So they're just slowly digging themselves more and more into a hole. Whereas regenerative agriculture, perennial based agriculture, there are very minimal inputs once everything's established. And every year, because they're perennials, things actually improve, not deprove. And so every year you get bigger and bigger profits with very minimal amount of increased labor. It's the same amount of labor to harvest nuts when you're producing one pound of nuts as it is to harvest 
when you're producing 10 pounds of nuts. It's just drive up to the tree, harvest the nuts, and then drive off. Obviously, this is with machinery, but the main purpose of this book is a ideological shift that he's wanting to get the people to adopt so that way the world is a better place. My main fascination with it is because it is more for self-sufficiency purposes and is more profitable. So if you're interested in farming, you should look into this kind of farming. And then lastly, which is the main reason why I'm making this, is because of the projects that I have been working on behind the scene and I will probably be announcing now. And if not, I will see you all next week. But most likely there's some sort of announcement at the end of this episode. See you guys.